Welcome to the Deviation Podcast. My name is Paige, and here is part two of Tony Blower's interview. The Deviation Podcast. Again, Tony, thank you. Thank you again for being willing to press the pause button so we could get back to this because obviously we have uh, we have a few more things to talk about. I'm excited. Let's do it. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you is how how did you get involved with working with special operations branches in the military and things along those lines. Like, how did that switch over? What was the course that got you to that point? Uh, cool. Uh, you're asking me some questions that you would think after 40 years in the industry and stuff that people would have asked that, but honestly, no one has ever asked me that question in that way, so it's kind of neat. Um, I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 you know, because it's uh, – and how I know that is the – the event that led to the introduction, that led to the journey, I've never told on a podcast before. So, so I know I've never been asked that, but I was, um, you know, you know, when I was explaining all the scenario stuff that I kind of put together uh, in the '80s, like reverse engineering scenarios, we were using at the time it was like like Frankenstein equipment. And what I mean by that. The metaphor of Frankenstein is like a, like different pieces of this, right? So the helmet was from Kyukushinkai Karate out of Japan. The shin guards were baseball, like catcher shin guards. Chest guard was like a taekwondo bamboo slat chest guard. We'd wear hockey gauntlets because we wanted to sometimes use sticks or knives or, you know, training weapons and stuff like that. So we wanted a grip but also some protection when we punch somebody. Uh you know, uh, elbow pads, uh, you know, from basketball or whatever. There was like just this like hodgepodge. And, and, uh, in I think 1987, 88, I was giving a seminar in Nashville, sitting there talking to my host and telling him like, Hey, one day I'm going to build equipment so we don't have all of this mix and match. And, you know, uh, and, and I sketched what became high gear on a napkin at his house. And, uh, 1993, uh, so it was like seven, it took me five years. Like it, like it just sat in my brain for two years. And then I said, you know, like what's involved in building a suit? And, uh, and believe me, this explains how I got to special operations, special forces, law enforcement, SWAT. It's uh, for anyone listening going, look, he's talking about a suit. She asked him, how did you get to teach the military and cops? Right. But this is actually the path. Uh, took me five years to build the suit. Um, I built it, again, in the same way I did the scenarios. I just I just seemed to look at things differently, where conventional gear that was out there, uh, you know, fist suit, red man suit, I don't know if you know what those are, but they're, they're like oversized, uh, bulkier gear. And, and because the conventional thinking is like, if you're going to have a role player that's going to get the shit beaten out of him, you want as much padding as possible. And, in its, you know, unintended consequence of that is that you end up having 
too much padding that prevents the role player from actually moving realistically. So you're developing a false sense of confidence for target acquisition, proximity sense, speed of an attack, right? So if the role player is moving slower, isn't dynamic, you start to think, oh, look at that. My reaction time was good there. If you're kicking a target that's actually eight inches closer to you than it would be in a real confrontation, then you get a false sense of security over like like your ability to hit a target or your follow through and stuff like that all changes when that gear's gone. And uh, so it took me five years to find someone to uh, uh, make the gear the way I wanted it. And when I was finally had a working prototype, I was like, well, how do I sell this world? Like my, I'm, a tr- I'm in training. I love training. I don't want to also be a manufacturer. So, I started looking right. at who was the most who was the most successful manufacturer at the time. It was Redman. They were out of Florida. I was living up in Canada. I called them up. They were reciprocal NDA, uh, and they didn't want to meet with me until I was vetted by this guy named Gary Klugowitz, who uh, at the time was the uh, um, the chairman of a uh, police training association called ASLET, which is uh, the American Society of Law Enforcement Trainers, no longer around. Uh, replaced now by IVEDA and other organizations, which, uh, but anyways, the point being, this was this big, like, trainers from all over the world, like, uh, would, would converge on different cities every year. Um, I don't know anything about this, right? So, but they, they say to me, if, if Gary Klugowitz, who is a, a famous trainer, he was their rep for Red Man in the police world, and he was the chairman of this big training organization, they said, if, if he thinks this is a good idea, then we'll meet. But we don't want to see your product just for liability, like intellectual property shit and stuff like that. He happened to be, uh, you know, this was like 1993-ish. And uh, uh, Gary was teaching at a high liability conference in Toronto, Canada. I drove there a six-hour drive from Montreal. And uh, we stayed up all night, like talking five hours till three in the morning. And he said to me, he, was a, he, he, he competed... Uh, in Kikushinkai Karate uh, over in Japan. He worked in jail. He's in law enforcement. He all, like, had all this experience. Real, he actually wrote for the, any of the law enforcement listening to this call. He and Bob Willis wrote the book, The Tactical Edge and, and uh, uh, Street Survival by Caliber Press. These are two encyclopedic manuals that almost every police department in the world has this in their library. So he's pretty, like, like well-educated totally connected, um, and we just talked for five hours about training, about drills, about scenarios, and he says to me, he says, I don't know if the Red Man Company will understand your principle, your concept, because it's diametrically opposed to what the Red Man suit is um, in terms of, like, the way you designed it. Uh, but he said, i got to think about that, and I'll discuss it with them. He said, but have you trained cops yet? 1993, I said, well, I've had cops come to my school in Montreal, but I've never thought about a course for cops. And uh, he said, well, I'm the chairman of ASLET, and I'd like to invite you. Like, these things are booked a year in advance, but it's my show. I can I can make a spot happen for you if you can get to Dallas. And uh, No so, way. Yeah, yeah. So I went there, and I was kind of like, he introduced me. He made sure... I'm not going to, like, name drop, but he made sure, like, like the who's who, who authors of books, guys who had been in famous gunfights uh, and now were in the training world. He, he basically said um, to people, 
I've been in this business for 20 years. I don't necessarily agree with everything Tony says, but there's stuff that he's doing that I've never heard anyone talk about or do. And his exact line was, I would be doing this this community a disservice by not introducing him to you. And I was like, holy shit, because I'm used to like, I'm used to in life and in business, people not sharing you, like pushing you, right? It's like everyone's got the scarcity mindset of like, well, I can't help make him more successful because then what, what do I get? And, uh, you know, it's just an unfortunate way to live, and but that's how most people are in business. So I was kind of blown away that this guy was actually complimenting me in an alpha male, like type A personality community. And, and he was a professional trainer too, so he was like, ostensibly generating more competition for himself. I'm forever grateful for him and totally humbled by that. And and uh and I I anytime we'd bump into each other, I'd tease him, I'd quote him on the thing. I go, Remember when you said this and you introduced me to the whole community in nineteen ninety three? He's yeah. I said, you know when you said when you said you didn't necessarily agree with everything that I said? He goes, Yeah. I go, You realize that's because you don't understand it yet, right? And he'd like, he'd try to kick me or punch me. You know, we, we had this like banter going on. And, and we'd show up at, uh, like conferences together, uh, you know, years later and he'd have like a big bag where he'd have two of his red man suits in there. And then I'd have like the same size bag that would have six of my suits in it. And I'd bug him. I go, how many suits you got in there? You go a couple. I go, I got like a hundred in mine. Cause my suit is so, my suit's like, like nine pounds head to toe and totally like, ergonomically so so we used to bug each other like that totally totally kibitzing like like fun but what a special guy introduced me and i and it was interesting at the first at the first uh um talk that i did about halfway through as i think it was like a three-hour talk um i had a bunch of people like sitting there like with their arms crossed and you could just see body language is 60 percent of communication they're sitting there with their arms crossed and I'm going, like, these, these fuckers hate me. Holy shit. And, uh, and then sure enough, like a bathroom break, you know, they don't come back and you can just read it and predict it. But there were a lot of other people there, like leaning forward, taking notes and then asking questions. And, um, you know, after, after the, uh, after my seminar, a lot of people stuck around. People came talking to me. And, uh, one guy, this guy, Steve Lucky, he's a former Vietnam vet. He's a consultant, airline pilot, but he was a consultant for, the uh the uh I forget the name of it, uh but the big like international airline association. Uh but the guy was, you know, you know, former military, uh and he pulls me aside and he says, like, dude, holy shit, uh like this is like really good stuff. Have you ever done any work with the air marshals? And I'm like, No. He goes, Well, I'm gonna introduce you to them. They gotta see this stuff because they're completely confined space. Like, you know, the distance between two seats on an airplane are 23 inches. That's their arena, right? And so next next thing I know, the introduction there. And then, you know, and that's, and it was just, it was just like all word of mouth, you know, just, uh, and it still is even to this day. I don't, I don't really run ads. Everything we do from our gear sales to our training is, is, uh, is pretty much word of mouth. But that, um, you know, there was definitely, Back back in the day, uh, you know, I, I, I went to all these different conferences. Uh, I had, you know, there was no hashtag haters back then, but I had my haters. Uh, uh, just, and usually it was like, was what I was, you know, talking about earlier. 
the unconscious bias. If you're used to doing stuff, you know, I, I do something, for example, I would say one of my provocative talks was, hey, if you want to make people safer, you need to get rid of the term the reactionary gap. Well, the reactionary gap for law enforcement is the distance between you and the bad guy. It's typically about four to six feet. You stop there. You look at his hands. You look at his eyes. You look at his thing. Threat discriminate. If you have any weapons, you ask him a couple of questions, and then you decide if you're going to arrest him and stuff. And I'm making it seem very kind of cartoony and casual right now just for – I'm not going to get into, like, specifics because I don't know who's listening. But yeah. but th- this distance is where whenever you see, like like, one or two cops talking to one or two potential suspects – you know, they're not like, like, you know, leaning on a bar elbow to elbow. They're, they're kind of like off, they're offset at a distance. And that distance is called the reactionary gap. Just the language. So what in my lecture, I would say there's no such thing as a reactionary gap. And just the idea because of the way the brain associates words and definitions, it assumes that this is the gap with, with, this is the gap in the, the time and the space with which I have to react. And, there's uh, another very, very uh, uh, powerful and, and um, famous uh, uh, experiment that was done by this guy, Dennis Tuller, where and it became what's called known as the Tuller drill, but it was completely misunderstood for decades, where they had a, a, a training scenario. They filmed it where they had a cop with a training knife and a cop with a, a safe weapon, and they would have the guy with the knife charge him in this empty parking lot. They filmed it. Caliber Press did it, actually. And they charged him, uh, and, and they were trying to figure out what's the distance you need to draw your, to get offline and draw your weapon without getting stabbed. And they determined that it was 21 feet. And so that became the 21 foot rule. So I, like, I saw that, and again, I like, I look at things and I just see them differently because I wasn't a cop, right? So I wasn't, right. I wasn't, uh, indoctrinated a certain way. I didn't have to memorize certain things. A lot of people, when you're, when you're in a high stress job and you're trying to like pass training and stuff like that, you're not really challenging or questioning shit because that's just really not – it's not encouraged. In fact, it's frowned on, right? It's like, hey, mm-hmm. get in line and do your shit and graduate, right? Yep. And so we do things, pe- and it's time for you to right. learn how we do them. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And so I would look at things, and I'd go, why are you doing that? And then we'd have some people go, you know, have you ever handcuffed anyone? Are you a cop? Like, I'd have, like some people like really obstinate about it. And then I'd have some people go, well, what are you thinking? What are you – and those are the people that really kind of help drive and make those introductions, uh, uh, you know, all the way up to, you know, eventually tier one units. Um, at the end of the day, I have a maxim, and, you know, uh, I, when I started doing a lot of conferences, you know, one of the, one of the big slides which, which I used to capture attention was, are you training for your next fight or are you training for your last fight? And people would look at that and they go, like, most people train for their last fight. If you lose your last fight, you're, you're fucking pissed off, you're visualizing the guy, if I meet him again, it's going to be different, or you're in the gym, you're hitting the weights, you're punching a bag, but you're thinking about the guy that beat your ass. And if you're training, and, and, and if you won your last fight, and it was significant, then a lot of people are patting you on the back and maybe asking you to talk about it or write about it. And so inadvertently, unconsciously, you're also training for your last fight, because you're celebrating that too much, where like the, the the true warrior seeks weakness, right? That's an old samurai proverb, and it was like, okay, what's my Achilles heel, and 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 that'll change all over my body as I, you know, like for example, when the UFC hit, it exposed 
everyone's unconscious bias for stand-up shit. And we realized, we realized, holy shit, like jiu-jitsu and grappling, like that can change every, your whole arsenal and the outcome of the fight in a heartbeat. So some people adapt and some people went, I'd like to see him try that against me. But the smart people started studying jiu-jitsu and wrestling and, and blending, and that evolved into what became mixed martial arts. So, um, but there's still, like even today, you'll, you'll find thousands and thousands of martial artists will go, well, that wouldn't work against me because I'm too deadly or my art is too deadly. Right. And, and, you know, obviously that's a, a ridiculous attitude and, and, and so on and so forth. But, um, so even to today, you know, I still have, I still have the haters, but back then it was like for about a decade, it was like, who is this guy? Uh, because my stuff was provocative where I'd say, for example, you all know the tooler drill, right? And everyone go, I remember this one, uh, uh, conference I was at about, about 400 trainers in it. And I said, how many of you here know what the tooler drill is? Everyone puts up their hand. I go, you know, I point at one guy. Give me just a quick definition. He says, this is a 21 foot rule. You need 21 feet to, when you, when the guy starts his attack, you need 21 feet to get offline, draw your weapon, engage the guy and not, and not get stabbed or cut or cut. I went, great. I go, what? And this is so here at 400 people. And I said, this is the first time I said this, I said, so what distance do you need to draw your weapon to shoot a guy if he's just running at you and he's not armed? And, like, they didn't know how to answer that. I go, because could a guy run and punch you in the face, knock you out, or punch you in the throat, crush your trachea, Adam's apple, grab your weapon from your holster, and then shoot you with it or stomp on your head when you're down? Could somebody kill you with their bare fists? And everyone went, well, yeah. I said, so if you need 21 feet for a knife, what's the distance you need if he has no knife, and they all looked at me, and I said, "Isn't it the 21 feet less the length of the knife in the demo?" Because if you visualize, and this is hard over a podcast, but visualize me doing like an overhand wild slash at your head or your neck with a knife in my hand. When that arm arcs across, they're holding the knife, so I end up looking like the end of a baseball pitcher, right, throwing that fastball. Like that's like a shitty John Wayne punch right at the trajectory of that arc. And I was like, do you get that? It's 21 feet less the length of the knife because what they were measuring is psychophysical response time. Oh, this threat is charging me. Holy fuck, it's a deadly threat, deadly force threat. I need to get, I need to get to my weapon. I need to move. So I look telling these guys, if you needed 21 feet with a knife, who came up with six feet as the reactionary gap? Because if that guy right in front of you, the other thing here is that like, this is, Super deep for the podcast. I mean, there's more like technical, and I get I get so passionate about this, I get sucked into it. So I'm like like doing a a officer survival training on a podcast here. But but the idea here (laughs) no, it's so 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 here's the thing: is like if you see somebody with a knife or a gun, there's a good chance if you're not like like totally spaced out that you're going to go, that's a fucking weapon, and you're going to start to kind of like your intuition, your instincts are going to go, is like that a prop or is that real or is that a good guy? Is that a bad guy? Especially right. in this day and age of active shooters and, and shit like that, right? And, mm-hmm. and but here's the thing. And this, again, and this is, this is again, why we've got people who go, Bauer's full of shit because they don't understand what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm trying to... I'm not teaching people how to move. I'm teaching them how to think. And how do you think about training? So your training should be what I call the three R's, realistic, relevant, and then rigorous. Rigorous at a point when you're ready for it. 
but realistic and relevant. It shouldn't be unrealistic and irrelevant. And a lot of training is because it's just like in a sport block. And this isn't a knock to combat sports. I'm just saying like you should be looking at how does the bad guy move? And when that movement happens, what does that do to me behaviorally, physiologically, psychologically? And how do I get back? I use the term off balance to on balance. We always get our training off balance on purpose because in a sudden violent encounter, you're off balance emotionally, psychologically, physically. You've got to convert that, get back on balance, catch up. And that could happen in a nanosecond, but it happens faster and more consistently when you train like that. Anyhow. Right. Um, so, so the idea here is if I see somebody brandishing a knife or reaching into their pocket for a knife, my brain can immediately escalate to that's deadly force. If I'm an untrained citizen, maybe I'm freaking picking up a chair and throwing at the person and breaking for an exit, right? Or barricading myself. Uh, I, I, you know, you're getting to, you get, you're choosing safety and getting the safety. If I'm a trained cop, when I see the knife, immediately I'm indexing my gun. I'm thinking about time and space and all that stuff. But the whole point here is when somebody doesn't have a weapon in their hand, you're even slower. And what I'm talking about here, and this is, this is like, <laughs> I apologize to everyone listening to this rant, but I hope, I hope you can visualize this. When I'm standing in front of somebody and they don't have a weapon in their hand, there's a part of my reptilian brain, my reactive brain, that's a little bit calmer, even though I might be a little bit activated because I go, like, I'm having an argument with this guy. But I want people to realize that, that if he was standing there going, you know, that's my parking spot, man, fucking move it, and he had a knife or gun in his hand, like, your response, your reaction, and how you'd be dealing with that would be completely different if you didn't. But oh, what I'm talking about, what I'm, I'm not just talking about that, that's so obvious. What I'm talking about is when we train somebody, whether it's in a reality-based self-defense program or if it's in defensive tactics or combatives, we create these accidental absolutes. Meaning we go, look, if he has a gun, you're going to do this. That's obviously a shoot scenario. He has a knife and he won't drop it. You do that. If he's empty hand, go to secure his arm, get the two o'clock, secure. And I'm going, no, the guy with the punch can fucking kill you too. And that changes the scope and the, the creativity of your drills when you realize that the, um, the lock and load and trajectory of a, somebody trying to hit you over here with a baseball bat or a machete or a knife or an improvised weapon, it's the same thing. It's the same body mechanics as a shitty hook punch, right? And so mm-hmm. that's where I look at it. Is I, like I, I parse this down into every nuance, including auditory, visual, tactile cues. We have these uh, slow motion drills where you're cataloging everything in your brain. Because your brain's like a hard drive that's just storing all this, all this data. So we've got some really cool drills that that uh, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but you know where. 20 years later, you know, neuroscience is saying, like, hey, this is called deep practice, and this is what's happening with neurotransmitters and neurons and myelinization. And as I studied that, I was like, holy shit, that's what we've been doing. So it's kind of exciting. But all of that, that's my answer to – thank you. That's that's really how I got into the law enforcement. And part of it was, like, Gary Kluger introduced me because of my high gear. But then when I would get up and I would start talking, and I guess what I – like, what I just did there – I did in uh, in 1994 uh, at, a, at a major conference a year after I did my first conference. I went back and spoke again, and I did this whole block on the reactionary gap and the tooler drill. 
uh, to, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of, of cops from around the world, cop police trainers, you know, they're active duty sworn. And, uh, you know, like maybe half of them are going, this guy's an asshole. Like, you know, who's he to tell us, you know, there's no such thing as a reactionary gap. And then other people are going, well, wait a minute, you know, you know, we had a cop that, that got knocked out. We got a cop that got a broken nose. We got a cop that, you know, got uh, the bad guy escape when he punched him in the face. I mean, it's the number one assault on police officers. There's a fucking sucker punch, right? And and so, you know, changing just your your own internal awareness and situational awareness about are you really are you really safe in the reactionary gap, or are you just close? So, right? And so, yeah. you know, it's it's a whole thing. Here's a good visual, and I, I'm working on this as part of my book as a as a, as a visual. Um, is you know, if you're if you're point on a SWAT team and you're just standing right outside of a door in a stack, right? Um, mm-hmm. and the bad guy's on the inside of the door, you don't know that, but you're getting ready for that. You were getting ready to go and you guys are gonna breach the door. Uh what's the distance where you're fully ready, like you're in a like a two point stance, you got your weapon at a low or high ready, depending on who trained you, and you're ready to go, but you're ready for deadly force as soon as you go. What's the distance between you and a potential bad guy? Well, it's one step and the width of a door, right? So like a SWAT team, a SWAT team has a much more active mindset. And so when I train, when I train police, like average patrol, I go, hey, listen, you're a first responder, right? They're like, yeah. I go, but really, if the bad guy moves first because action's faster than reaction, you're going to move second. You've got to catch up to what he's doing because you presume compliance. That's why you're that close, right? I said, so you need to have this hostage rescue mindset and a SWAT mindset and then a patrol mindset. And they're like, what? I go, you might be the hostage rescue team in the assault on you if you meet this person that's willing to try and injure or kill you to facilitate their escape. And they're like, holy shit. Like, that just changes your posture. And I'm not, and I'm not, I don't want anyone listening to this going, like, we're not teaching people to necessarily be more aggressive sooner. But it's be ready for violence sooner and make sure – and the way you get ready for violence sooner is through your training. You know, right. And, it's, and it's, a, it's a blend of mind tech and the physical drills. Absolutely. Um, now, has it been – do you remember the first time you trained, like, a Tier 1 unit? Like, let's say, like, a Green oh, Beret yeah. team. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and how that was – necessarily how different the training was, but more how was that different for you working with not that police officers aren't amazing and but also I can, somebody you who's don't, you don't be have a to be polite. Listen, yeah, you understand. Listen, yeah, listen I, yeah, yeah, and I'll just be like like some cops are some of the laziest athletes. I'll say it so you don't have to. The late, like, you know, you get to a class and the cop anyone have any questions? Yeah, what time do we get out today? What time's lunch? I'm like, oh, fuck, this guy's going to be a, like a ball of joy, right? Like, you know, we would ask you, well, why are you here? I was sent to this training to check it out. Okay, right? And then someone else will go, yeah, uh, you know, I was researching it. And when I saw you in the area, I put in for it, real excited. You could just tell in the mindset. And you could tell in the waistline, right? And no, you know, oh, I'm, I don't, yeah. I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to insult people. But listen. No, you know, no, I have a, a good, actually one of the, the first person I interviewed for this podcast he just became a cop and he's a army veteran and he, I went to his graduation and out of like the four awards that you could get, 
he won two of them because he, I mean, one, he's amazing, but he also went into it with that, with that, with that mindset. Yeah. And, and, it's, and, and I'll tell you this, it's, it's, it's 99% because he's former military, right? And so he's got that calling in him. He also developed or had that work ethic, uh, uh, because of his military training. And, and you see that a lot. Um, and so, so the difference right away is, you know, like there are in, in, in the police course, and I want to be careful of this because I, I, I work with both communities. Um, the cops that I'm training, I, I wish they, I, across the board, and there are like, there are some classes where, where everybody's like this, and then there's some classes where half the class is like this, where they're like, they really want to take something back and make their agency, um, uh, better. They want, they want the newer software. And, and, and what I mean by that is I remember doing a seminar back in, the, in, I think 2002, and this guy had trained with me a few times, and I had really been doing a ton of, of work and, and revamped a whole bunch of our cerebral stuff. And, uh, his name was Doug, and he puts his hand up in the middle of one of my talks, and he puts his hands up and he goes, I go, yeah, Doug, what's up? I hadn't even, like, said, are there any questions? He goes, you know, I thought I was getting really good at this stuff, and I come back here, and I feel like a beginner again. And I'm like, you keep you keep changing things. And I'm like, I said, but you, like his body language and his tone was defeated, right? Mm-hmm. So he he was looking at the – so some people come to the class going, I'm probably the best in the class, right? They come there, like, to stroke their ego, to, like, look good. And some oh, people come, yeah. come there, like, with that, that big open mind, like – or and some people come there going – you know, uh, like, our, we haven't changed our defensive tactics in, like, 10 years, and, and so we heard about you. We want to check this out. So they're there as sponges, right? And they're going to, they're gonna, you know, test and evaluate. But I looked at Doug, and I said, Doug, I said, I noticed that you've got a, uh, a phone and a computer with you at this course. And this is, like, early 2000, so it was, like, like computers were shit back then, and phones were, like, <laughs> you know, with, the, like, the first Motorola flip phone, right? I go, well, I go, exciting when, thing in the world, but yes. <laughs> right, at the time, right? But, but, you know, stuff was coming out every six months. You had something new where they changed the RAM and something, and now you had new speed and you had new, you know, this is like dial-up era. And, uh, <laughs> and I, and I used this metaphor. I said, I said, Doug, I said, right now the word processor on your Texas Instruments computer is like a fucking hundred words, right? That it's holding or whatever it is. I said, when they come out with the next generation, uh, software, that allows you to like save, write a book and save a book or your phone comes out and it's got like new tech. Are you going to like write a letter to them and go, why do you guys keep fucking improving shit? Right. You know, I go like, cause that's what I'm hearing here. Like I'm working my ass off to make this better. So you can be as a trainer, make people safer and you're fucking complaining because we're evolving. Right. That's, that's my whole thing. We changed. I fired trainers. Remember we used to like before, our classes, uh, our, you know, our, our train and trainer courses were, were, they're four days now, but they used to be five days. And we see, I used to Skype every Sunday night. Uh, I'd Skype my team on the road from a hotel, uh, to talk about the importance of the course. You know, sometimes I knew there was like, like a VIP in the course, or sometimes I, I it was a custom course, or, and I'm like, 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 like the mother hen, you know, where I'm like, like, I want to be at every course, but I understand 
that I, I can't because I got to grow a team. And if I'm there, it's going to, like, I'm going to take over the course, right? And I, and I can't right. be. So I got to grow this team. So I'm, so, I'm, but I remember having, you know, courses where, like, there's three trainers sitting on a couch in some fucking holiday inn somewhere with their laptop open and they're on Skype. And I go, guys, hey, on Wednesday, you know that uh, the uh, the isolation drill we do against the tackle where the guy goes for the gun grab and knock him down, but then he goes to the leg? I want to do that Tuesday, so I want you to swap these two slides in here. I, I was visualizing the drill, and I think it's going to be more impactful. And, like, two guys in the room would be, like, making notes, and there'd be, like, one trainer there. You know, you'd see him, like, do one of these, like, sighs. No one can see this, but visualize the guy that goes, Oh fuck! You know, like you know, we gotta change something. It's yeah. fucking Sunday. He's like, and and I remember the first time I said this, I ended up firing this fucker. Um, I said, "Hey, dude, you remember we're on Skype? I can see your face." <laughs> he's like, he's like, he's like, "Oh no, I'm just tired, coach." I go, "Fuck off!" Like, I like, I said, "This course isn't for you. You're a retired cop now. This course isn't for you. It's for the cops. They're gonna go put their hands on a real bad guy, man. Remember that. Fuck, like." Yeah, I just got really angry right now. <laughs> you living it because it was like, but I've had a few people like that that like thought this was, you know, they were like the lead singer. Like I wrote the song and I put the band on the road, and they were like like a boy band, and they didn't have to fucking lift any. So I had a couple of prima donnas over the years, unfortunately, where I'd have to say to them, guys, this is like, like these guys are going to actually get into fights. This course and like, it, what I'm getting at is, is we change our program we evolve it we upgrade it every year uh based on uh we do ars after every course after actions uh you know how did that drill how did this work you know and people in the class don't know of course when we're trying a new a new modality but then we'll come back and if and if we liked it you know we'll inject it and, and, and switch it and sometimes like like we're about to launch our spear 6.0 and the 6.0 is the, the iteration um, but it, it morphed three times in the last four months. These are like full lesson rewrites and then, and then, uh, um, doing like, like, uh, like test runs at different courses. So, like, that's how on top of our, if you, if you think about our lesson plan, like software, like, that's how mm-hmm. on top of it we are. Which is fantastic. I mean, it's, it's not all that different from what we were talking about yesterday with, when your very first client, Mitch, came back to you after a fight and it hadn't gone right, right. well, you're always looking yeah. for different ways to improve. And, I mean, these are people that are going to be on the front lines and they're going to be using your techniques in real life or death situations. So I think that's – I really think that's great that you're continuing to improve so you give them the best possible training out there. Yeah, so like the like the philosophical progression for me is there's effectiveness, uh uh or there's success, then there's effectiveness and then there's efficiency. So success, effectiveness and efficiency. So what I mean by that is is um you're successful in the in how you handle that confrontation, but you wrecked your car, you drove through a uh, a building, uh uh uh, there was uh, some collateral damage to some people, but like the bad guy's down. So mm-hmm. you go, okay, we won, so we were successful, but you know, we start looking at the effective part was, oh, look at this, you know, I've, I've destroyed this relationship in, in the process, right? And then I start looking at efficiency. So w- when you, 
when you introspectively look at your training and then you introspectively look at real events. So I look at like body cam, dashboard video, CCTV, and where uh, most of the industry uses that to study events. Remember my maxim earlier? Are you training for your next fight or your last fight? Most mm-hmm. people study famous events, video, to go look how they're doing this, look how they're doing this. Okay, we've got to be ready for that. So that means you're training for a fight that already happened. Now, what I'll do is we use the videos and we replicate them in the training. So we'll actually take a body cam or dashboard video and we recreate. I I want to use the word recreate. I love the word replicate because I'll say you can do exactly like this, and and we'll we'll do things where you know bad shit's happening to good people. And we replicate that, and people are very uncomfortable with that. Why am I practicing getting hit here and losing my gun? And I'll and you know you know the maxim for that block of training is this is the penalty of inaction. This is the penalty of not taking the threat seriously. This is the penalty of presumed compliance, and so on and so forth. So what we what we do in our training is is we uh, uh, deeply work the emotional psychological factors that are going to uh, be necessary to support the physical action. Right, and so we look at uh, the emotional psychological toolbox, and then we work. We work on. Uh, I, I, I like to tell people physiology before physicality. So what a lot of people will do is like work on that kick or that punch or that elbow or or you know how to draw the weapon, and they're working on on the mechanics. Uh, but in in a in a few again, you got to do the research. But if you really look at real extreme violent encounters where the bad guy is moving first and in a close quarter, you don't see the finesse biomechanics that were practiced in in uh, a martial arts school or in a defensive tactics room or combatives room. And so what I did is I'm not replacing that stuff. You still need that stuff, but but I'm inserting a type of training before that that creates a different level of, of enhanced survivability or insulation. I don't know if I said this in our earlier talk, but Bob Willis, when he saw me, I think I said it, but Bob Willis, when he saw my philosophy for teaching and watched one of my courses early on, he said that, he said, you teach the two seconds before the fight everyone else teaches. And that's like, that's like, to me, that's the big bang moment, right? Where suddenly you go, Okay, let's go, boom, and something happens. And, and what happens there is physiology responds faster than physicality. And physicality, because what I mean by physicality is like, oh, when he does this, I'll do that. You know, wax on, mm-hmm. wax off. Um, your executive function, your prefrontal cortex, the brain needs to know what's happening before it can download and then neuromuscularly communicate, oh, that's a right hook. You should bob and weave and hit him with an uppercut. Or you should raise your hand and block here, Right. And it just doesn't have time to do that in, in, in the real world in that type of fight. But I want to make it very clear to people listening um, that we're talking very, about a very specific type of confrontation. But it's the, the you know, like we like to remind people, yes, all fights are dangerous, but the most dangerous one is the ambush because your situational awareness is compromised in that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um now when when you worked with some more of those elite units, did it was it easier to teach them? Was it just was it a different experience yeah. on yeah. your end? Yes. So so I went off on one of my rare tangents there when you asked me what's the difference teaching the military versus law enforcement. The the and, and any cops listening to this, 
like like the subtext of what I was saying is, is train your fucking ass off, right? Like if you're playing just touch football with your friends, you could be like drinking three beers and, 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 you know, eating a pizza and go out there. You're just playing touch football. But if you were playing tackle football in, in the NFL and that's how you're eating, you're going to get fucked up, right? And so I want, I want, I want cops to realize like, like that's, you're in the fucking NFL and people are really hitting each other. And so you want to be, uh, in the best shape that you could possibly be in recognizing that you might need to fight for your life like two days in a row, right? Where yeah. you think about it, like look at the shape of, 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 of even an amateur fighter, like might fight like once, you know, three times a year, once every four months. If he's really active, like four times a year, once every three months. And he's training, but he's only fighting one night, one person that he has film of, in, and he's within like five or seven pounds of that person, and he's agreed to the rules, and he gets to put on a mouth guard or a cuff. So when, when you know, when, if you're uh, uh, military or law enforcement, and you're moving uh, towards a potential threat, like you may be fighting for fucking three hours straight, and multiple people, and you're not wearing, you know, a cup and a mouth guard, and and the rules are whatever, right? It's a it's a right. whole whole different uh, mindset. So training. The military, for me, because I'm insanely passionate, is is in many cases more fun because almost everybody in the class has the let's fucking do shit mindset. Let's go, right? right? And so <laughs> and so they're all they're almost like like uh, you know, do we have to do any lectures? I go, yeah, you got it. Like if you're in a trainer course, you need to understand the what. <laughs> You got to understand the why. We're not just going to go out and try and break shit, right? So, right. Um, so that that's a tricky thing because because some of the courses we do are, uh, and I'll tell you this, like like I'm I'm not going to mention the country or the unit, uh, uh, but I uh, I got called to go do this uh, tier one training. We did we did a proof of principle course where they just wanted to evaluate the stuff, and this is like like I was at one of those units on V nine eleven. Like like that's mind boggling to me. So so I was at a tier one location on the nine the actual nine eleven, uh teaching knife fighting. And and there was one of the one of the uh uh one of the guys there is standing there with his arms uh crossed and he's he's from like a like a different unit that brought me in but they you know they've got you know visitors from different units uh, like uh, looking and assessing and he's standing there with his arms crossed and I go hey man you got a question he goes nope and I go nope really I said dude you know 60, body language is 60% of communication clearly you have a question he goes what has this got to do with our mission I go well you know first of all you're a guest in this this other Units course, and we already discussed the POI, and this is some of the stuff that they wanted to learn. Uh, and I said last year there was a guy from one of the other uh, uh, military organizations that was stabbed to death outside of a bar. Uh, tier one guy stabbed to death outside of a bar, um, and he didn't know what to do with a few guys standing around with, with, with a knife. Now, had he had eleven colleagues with him, all in full kit, that wouldn't have happened. I said, so a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff is, do you have any personal defense skills? I'm not here teaching tactics. I'm not teaching room clearance. I'm not teaching the CQB. This is like, like, meanwhile, 9-11's happening with box cutters, right? And, um, uh, the, the, I forget why that, oh yeah, so like how many years ago was 9-11? Long time. So 
last year I get called from this other place on this other part of the world. You know, they'd heard about me, but, but I wanted to tell you that I was excited to go then at, I was 57, so like I'm 58, that's the last year. I was 57, I was excited then as I was, you know, decades ago, you know, you know, when it was my first tier one group. And, um, and so the, like, I still get that, that rush. And I, in every course that I, that I get to teach, I'm like, you know, I, I start off just thanking them for the opportunity to share stuff. And, and, cause I look at these, I look at, at those guys as like world class athletes. It'd be like somebody oh, inviting me to leave, you know, so it'd be like somebody inviting me to, uh, uh, you know, the uh, Olympic training center and, and to, you know, like, what are you going to teach these guys, right? Now, there is a lot of stuff to teach them about mindset, about fear management, about performance psychology, and, and some of the stuff that, that I've done a lot of research on. Um, but, like, you, you, they're already so good. So, I, like, I look at it as, like, if I, can, if I can change the way you think about a confrontational preparation by half a percent, that makes you even more elite, right? Oh, so I, if I, if I'm taking If I'm taking, like, a beginner – they're like overwhelmed when I take someone who's like a, like a world class tactical athlete, um, you know, and it, and it, and it pushes me because I, I'm like, I'm nervous before those events. Like I want them to go, like I want them to go, fuck, this is the shit, right? So, so, you know, it's like a big performance. It's exciting. Oh, definitely. Because you're talking to the people who really, who really, really know what they're doing and, uh, some of them will then go on and teach similar courses as well because they're also at that level so that's yeah i think that's awesome and that also speaks volumes about you which is also part of what we talked about yesterday too with how amazing it is that you found something you're this passionate about that even you know four decades later um at the age of 57 last year you're still just as stoked about teaching an elite unit which is just yeah. i just i love that um well i, I, I mean i literally I, I literally, sorry for interrupting, but I literally feel like I'm still like 20 years old dreaming about it, right? And just my body moves slower and I can't kick as high and, and shit like that. Uh, but my brain is still like 20 and I'm going, oh my God, I'm going here. Holy shit. Like I'll call my <laughs> wife and go, what if I forget everything I know? I think I'm, I'm so nervous. I'm so, but it's like, it's excitement to just, to just share the shit and do well, you know? And, and cause I know, like I said, you know, I said, you know, before in the in the first interview, like it would be cool if I improved Tupperware, right? But mm-hmm. it's like it's not that important, <laughs> you know. And, and this and this yeah. is important. And one other thing I want to add is, you know, working with law enforcement and military is and, and even firefighters and EMS and like like everyone's a target these days. Um, yeah. The the uh, like there's a when I do our, our courses for our, our citizens, you know, our be your own bodyguard course and stuff like that, it's the same intensity because when you've got somebody who has no training, no background, they haven't gone through, you know, any types of, any type of rigorous obstacle course to shooting, to driving, and they're just out with their kid minding their own business and something starts to happen, like, like they actually need this more then somebody who's trained, my expectation of, of, you know, just like even a cop, not a SWAT cop, not like, and so what's the difference in like mindset and skill level between like cop, SWAT, and, and hostage rescue team? Well, in a smaller city, 
That's all the same person. Think about that. The hostage rescue, the guy who said, oh, shit, we got a hostage, he's going in there and he's thinking, I'm probably going to have to shoot somebody if, if this goes too long. The SWAT team is really going in there to uh, capture contraband or, or, or guns or, or dope and arrest people, and he might get in a shootout. And if you think about that, there's a different level when it's a hostage rescue. Um, you know that there's an innocent person that is in grave danger by another human, right? And so right. your mindset isn't, uh, I wonder if he stashed the dope. It's like, okay, I might have to shoot somebody because he might be about to kill somebody. And so right there, you're at the highest level of readiness you can be. And now if it's SWAT, you think you're at that same level, but you're actually not, right? And you'll feel like I'm sure there's a bunch of police on the phone that'll go, what kind of bullshit is this? It's just, this is just neuroscience. This is like psychology. It's like, it's like you're not as ready for the fight when you're walking up to the house as when you, when somebody kicks down the door and you're moving through the house, even though you're three feet away. You're ready, but you're not as ready when somebody breaches, right? And now the shit, now that's like the bell going off for the, the fighter. I've done all my training for three months. And I'm in the ring staring at the guy and, and, you know, if it's MMA and, 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 uh, you know, I've, I've got, uh, Big John McCarthy says, I gave you instructions in the dressing room. You're ready to go. But if that guy threw a punch right there, boom, and he hit you, he'd knock you out. He'd be disqualified, but you're not ready to fight yet. Even though right. you're like two seconds away from the bell going. That's how mm -hmm. deep the psychology can get. So, um, but the, the, so I just want people listening because there's probably a bunch of people listening to this who aren't professional protectors. They're not part mm -hmm. of the, you know, professional warriors. It's like, like everything we do has that same passion and intensity. And what I look at, like when we're doing a course for civilians, for citizens, um, is there's, there's this recognition that these people aren't tactical athletes and that, but they still need, we still need to put the fire in their, in their heart and their mind of what they have to do if a confrontation were to erupt. Oh, definitely, because, I mean, things, unfortunately, we live in a world right now where there are active shooters. I mean, it was, I took a self-defense course with Johnny Primo. Um, he's a, yeah. he was on my podcast a while back. Oh, awesome. Um, and yeah, yeah. Uh, good guy. Later, oh, yeah great guy um later that day actually after after the course was done there was actually an active shooter in a mall like maybe 20 minutes away from where we took the course and it's wow. if that's not evidence in and of itself of how important it is to learn that information like i don't know what it is because in one of the things he talked about this that was his uh his second course that i that i had taken one of the things he talks about is like you don't you don't want to be a liability. Like you want to be able to, if anything, at least be able to protect yourself, but don't be a liability right. either to yourself or to those around you. Be an asset. Right. It reminds me yeah. of, uh, uh, you know, we tell people don't be an accomplice to your, to your, you know, I don't want to be graphic. Or don't be an accomplice to your murder. Like a lot of people just mm -hmm. cooperate. They panic and they go, oh shit, what do you want me to do? What do you, you know, and it's just, it, it's bigger than, it's bigger than the active shooter, which is horrific in itself because you've got, you know, rape, you've got, you've got, uh, uh, you know, violent, um, robberies, you've got, you know, just like the knockout game that, that went around and just like random, you know, spontaneous violence. You see shit, you just have to Google it to see it. And this isn't, 
you know, to walk around paranoid. It's just to, it's like, it's like when you put your seatbelt on the, on, in the car, you're not hoping to get an accident. I get some people that go, well, I don't want to train like too much. Or I want, like, I might attract violence. You get like, you know, people thinking weird thoughts like that. Um, and I'm like, like, you know, you put a spare tire in your car, not hoping to get a flat. It's just in case you put on your seatbelt just in case, you know, so. Uh, like everybody, the way we teach our 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 bio bodyguard course is with the same uh, spirit and design as EMS might teach a basic first aid course. Right in four to six hours, you can learn some CPR, how to put on a tourniquet, you know, uh, uh, mouth to mouth. But you do like like some basic stuff, and the purpose of that is to help save somebody's life, but to buy that person some time so that a paramedic EMS and a paramedic could get there. And if it's serious, they're going to do bigger and better stuff than you were able to do to buy time to get that person to emergency care where somebody who's got even better equipment and better training is going to do everything they can to save a life. And so it's really about buying time. And so we, I designed this, I designed this course with that same spirit in mind, uh, uh, you know, where it's a one-day course, and, and and the we've had a lot of flack from you know hardcore martial artists saying you can't you can't learn to defend yourself in a day. And what they're actually confusing is, and this is the unconscious bias that I talk about, is they're thinking that I'm teaching them a whole martial art in a day, and obviously they're not. But when you ask somebody who does jiu-jitsu or taekwondo or boxing or whatever, can you learn to defend yourself in a day, most people will say no. But if you ask the doctor, who's the black belt in this metaphor, could you learn some life-saving skills in a day, what's the doctor going to say? He's going to say, fuck yeah, everyone should take a CPR and know how to put on a tourniquet, right? They're going to they're gonna encourage that. And so that's what oh, we've done. Right. It's, a, it's a block on situational awareness and verbal de-escalation some basic uh, uh, quarter extremity movement that everyone can do, uh, and, and then you're out of there. And, you know, I just wanted to, like, like reiterate that because if anyone checks this out and you've got, like, uh, a lot of people who are in your audience who are already trained, um, I just wanted to – I love explaining that because it's, you know, it's, it's taught in the same spirit as just your basic CPR first aid course. The only difference is when you take that course, you're acquiring life-saving skills to save somebody else's life. You still don't necessarily have the skills to save your life in the context of violence, you know. Um, And so uh, uh, come full circle on that, everybody, you're talking about uh, Johnny's course and and, and shit that happens in the world, is I – where I'm going with this is I want to reframe people who are, man, I don't want to study for 10 years just in case something happens, that you can take a good, simple self-defense course, which is super short, and it just becomes uh, almost like, like, like a piece of software that you put in your computer. It's a program you don't necessarily use all the time, but it's there. It's like a virus protection or it's, a, you know, it's just an add-on, right? And that might be oh, a, a silly metaphor, but that's, that's the way I explain it to people. No, I think that that makes complete sense. And I, I can't remember who it was, um, but and nor can I remember who gave me this example, unfortunately. But um, they were talking about, like, one of, like, the best competitive shooters out there. And somebody had asked this guy, like, well, how is it that you've gotten so good? And he's like, 
I, pr- I practice 10 minutes every single day. And it's right. just like, it doesn't have to be some huge, huge thing that you do. It's just like, it, I mean, take as many courses as you want, because of course, the more courses you take, the more, um, you know, the more tools you have in your tool belt. But at the same time, like practice those things a little bit each day. And then, you know, everything's a, uh, what's that word? Oh my God. Um, perishable skill. Okay. So practice it a little okay. bit and yeah, then right. you'll be okay. At least as like, you know, as Mike Glover says, you're your own first response. Police officer can't be there in, you know, 0.2 seconds. So like, take care of yourself right. for a minute until they can be there. Right. But, um, another thing I wanted to ask you about, um, let's see, where was it here? Give me my little list of questions here. Um, you talk a, you talked a little bit about there being a difference in PTSD with people who fight back and people who don't fight back. And that one, I just want to pick your brain about that because that one kind of sparked my interest as I, you were being interviewed by somebody else. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of research out there that that uh, that people who fought back they were still like victimized when you you know you when you look at oh they were still attacked they still maybe got a scar they still got hit they still got you know uh, uh you know shit bad shit happened to them but they were fighting the whole time and then and then somehow the cavalry arrived or the the bad guy said fuck this and went on to somebody else because there was a resistance those people in all of the literature that I've read and people that I've talked to over the years those people have a different uh, disposition after the event. They're like, yeah, it was fucking shit that that happened, man. But, uh, you know, when I was hitting him screaming, fuck you, fuck you. And, you know, and then he ran like, like I was so angry. Like, just like, like people just weren't as victimized or weren't victimized at all. In some cases, they, you know, clearly there was trauma, right? Shit happened. There's some Mm -hmm. sort of emotional or psychological scarring, like, you know, it's like if you even in, in you, you know, someone breaks into your car or breaks into your house, even though they're not there, you're like your house doesn't feel the same until you completely forgot about it. And that might take a day or a week or a month or, or depending on what happened, you might move. Right? Like going, fuck, I don't want to live here. It's haunted. And so, like, you know, people can say, well, that doesn't exist. That's just blah, blah, blah. You know, if it's in your mind, it's existing. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's whether, you know. Uh, uh, it's, it's whether it feels real to you. And so I just remember reading and talking, and, and I've interviewed a lot of uh, uh, victims and victors of violence. And, and you know, one connection that was the same, whether somebody was a martial artist, whether they were a cop, whether they had zero training at all, that when 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 the fight erupted and there was a moment where you're not sure how this is going to turn out, that Everybody who emerged victorious, and when I say victorious, it isn't like, oh, you know, he tapped him out or knocked him out. It might just be, I escaped. I survived that. Right. I escaped. Was, uh, there was a moment the, 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 uh, universal switch was like this. I, I, I use the term indignation in our training because I, everyone describes what happens differently, but I, as as a researcher and as a as a coach, I needed to come up with a name for the principle, 
And indignation is like a special type of anger. It's kind of like that, how dare you, right? Mm-hmm. So you'll hear some people say, like, you got to get angry. You got to get behind that, you know, you know, get, right? Get some aggression. And, and I'm like, let's talk about indignation. What is indignation, right? And so that was at that moment that, that, uh, you know, someone's looks like they're, they're going to be the victim and all of a sudden that they can flip that indignation switch that changes, uh, their, it kind of, it kind of converts their fear into fuel and now they're exploding and it doesn't have to be technique. And I would say don't confuse technical with tactical. Like tactical is fighting back. Technical is where should I put my hand? Where should I put my foot? What should I have my movie? Oh. You know, and oftentimes in, in, in the chaos of, of sudden, of sudden violence, you don't have a chance to be technical. So just mm-hmm. always be tactical. Yeah, yeah. Like that that fight you got into, what, when you were, were you 15 with that bully? Where it was just a matter of, like, doing what you could. It wasn't a matter of doing everything right. perfectly as you yeah. learned in and, your Taekwondo classes. And, you know, uh, had I, you know, it's, it's funny because I was uh, in, in an interview I did last year I realized that I created the self-defense system I wish somebody had taught me as a kid. Hmm. Right? Like, so I had to handle that completely differently. Yeah. If I had what I know now and, you know, back at this, as, this, you know, as the 15 year old. And so, you know, I can look back and go, yeah, I was tactical. I, I trusted my intuition. I sensed that he was going to sucker punch me. I didn't know what. So I hit first and then, my body's survival reflex kicked in and protected my head when that punch came around. And then I, I, I used a, a, a shitty clinch position to like do an improvised hip throw, you know, based on my wrestling background. And then the fight was over, like, you know, I'll move later. But it was, but I wasn't thinking, oh, don't get technical. In fact, that was, that was the interesting thing is remember part of my inner dialogue was he's too close to kick. He's too close to kick, right? My, all my Taekwondo training was actually distracting me from thinking tactically. That's a, that's an interesting observation. So, I mean, we, you know, it, like for the last 20, 30 years, most of my students are trainers and coaches, right? So, so I'm working with the people who are training other people. So I'm, I'm trying to get them to see scenarios differently so that they can be more of a mentor coach than other, than just a gym teacher. Okay, we're going to do this move 10 times. Go. You know, it's like, it's like, hold on a second, let's get inside people's head. I would say, I would like to say that a teacher uh, um, imparts information, but a coach inspires performance. And and I try to get everyone to like adopt this new this new focus of I want to be a coach. I want to be able to inspire performance. And to do that, it's not about the techniques. It's about how you're thinking. It's it's much more mental. Absolutely, absolutely. I like that a lot. Um. I have a couple more questions for you. One of them is, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I don't even have an answer to that. Can you really just, like, talk for, like, 900 hours? And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, for me, I mean, that's so, that's so subjective and so personal. I'm so, like, intense and high-strung and, like, let's go, let's do this. Let's, like, oh, you know, we got to fix this we're going to do that probably the best advice uh and i don't know who said it because it was probably said to me a bunch of times over the years is like everything is going to be okay meaning just take a breath and relax it doesn't have to get done today uh, but that's very personal to me because 
because my my personal off tempo and my expectations of myself are 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 ridiculous. I think our, in general everyone is right. We're our own worst critic. Um, uh, but but I wish I had kind of embraced that many many years ago. Um, because I still think I'd be doing what I'm doing now, but I have maybe enjoyed a lot of the the journey a lot more by not just like you know like like rushing and worrying about shit. Like it'll it can, this can this can get done tomorrow. The only thing that can't get done is is protecting yourself in sudden violence. Right in that moment, you do not have time to dial nine one one. So you know, so yeah. otherwise, everything else can be done tomorrow. Nope, and that's not if they're listening. That's that's. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that's not. Uh, I don't want people writing down. Tony said procrastination is good. <laughs> I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about procrastination. I'm just talking about like very very often we 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 give ourselves like these task lists that are just you know there's fucking 33 things on them and really you just need to pick the the most important three and just do that and then and then yeah. and then start again tomorrow. Nope, I'm right there with you. It's something I remind myself on the regular because I struggle with a similar thing. It's uh yeah. It's I think, tough. I think I think I think most most people do. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's very refreshing, you know, to find people that have this kind of like zen flow in their life and I've I've got a a, a couple people in my life where I like hanging out with them because you know, it's just like you know, it's, it's just a lot more chill. You're just we're just enjoying the day more, and it's kind of like you know, try to try to resonate with their frequency and learn from it. Absolutely, everybody's everybody's your teacher. Just a matter of yeah, uh, finding what exactly. they're trying to teach you, um, either right. trying to or unintentionally trying to teach you. But um, right, there's a lot of so, oh fuck, I'm not going to ever do that or be like that. There's a lot of you can like the bad examples are sometimes the best teachers, right? So, oh, so you're right. They're like every everyone's everyone's a teacher. Mm-hmm. This all has to do with your mindset and the way uh, the way you view all the situations you go through. Yep. Um, one of my final questions, and this is a little bit of a tough one, um, is how did you get through your lowest low? Hmm. Um. Ironically, you know, intuitively the same answer I gave you before. Let's do this tomorrow. Um, and, and what I mean by that is I've had a, a couple of really shitty things happen in business, personal, uh, some major betrayals in business. Uh, 2010, I had uh, uh, my company was doing $12 million domestically. I had 12 staff, 21,000-foot facility, and I had a... Uh, uh, an employee of mine do a deal that essentially uh, put me out of business and he did it behind my back and I ended up dissolving the company and and in that moment um, all the people that I'd mentored and trained around me so I had like a military training division I had law enforcement I had the general the the private martial arts. I had like three people that were, you know, salaried employees. We had overseas people. All of them fucked off and betrayed me. All of them because they thought I was done. They thought when I dissolved the company that, you know, I was going to move back to Canada and and get a job, you know, 
somewhere else and they thought I'd lost everything. So rather than, like none of them even called and said, hey, are you okay? You know, let's fight back. Uh, and uh, so it was the, we don't know each other and, 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 you know, we're just talking on the phone here so you can't really see my face. But, like, these are people that I literally had, you know, trained when they were maybe like a cop and then retired and came to me and said, hey, I'd love to work for you. And people like I had relationships with, people I trusted my kids with, who, you know, went off and, and uh, opened up companies, called my clients. Uh, you know, one of my employees uh, uh, copied my high gear and started selling it. Uh, oh and and I was like, it was like, like I thought I was like in a, like an insane asylum horror movie, but I couldn't do anything, right? I mean, like what I wanted to do, I couldn't do, right? And, right. and it was, um, you know, so I went where, like where I literally went from having this really successful company that I'd spent 30 years building uh, on Friday to having zero revenue on Monday, like in two days, everything was done. And, uh, um, I, I, we had, uh, I've only actually, I actually only ever talked about this on two other, I think two other, well, two and a half other podcasts. One was, uh, Team Never Quits and, uh, and this, uh, other, um, uh, podcast, uh, whose name I just escaped. But we had, we had, the month earlier, we had a home invasion, an armed home invasion. I wasn't home. My wife and my kids were home. So it was like the most chaotic, traumatic, fucking uh, uh, experience, oh and and so a month later, this thing happened in my business, the home invasion, and my wife and kids are are sitting upstairs in my bedroom, like like my wife's crying on the floor. What are we going to do? We've lost everything. And I was speaking at this counterterrorism conference in uh, San Diego, and. Uh, um, I think I mentioned that, you know, when I was when I was 13, I came out here. I mentioned the Instagram post I did. When I was 13, I came out here with my father and my sisters, and as soon as I smelled the air and saw it, I said, I'm going to live in California one day. So this was 2010. I was turning 50 years old in May. This all happened in January, November, December, January. Um, and um, and she's crying, and, and i got to leave in two weeks to go talk. And... Uh, with like really a little bit given what like all the all the the mortgage and all the expenses we had we had very little money uh uh with everything going on hiring lawyer lawyers you know like fucking lawsuits all sorts of crazy shit going on and like it's like a moment it's a moment there page where you're going you could run away like some guys do you could kill yourself like some people do um and uh, my wife is sitting there crying on the floor, and uh, she says, what are we going to do, you know? And I said, um, book flights for everybody in San Diego. Come to the conference with me. Let's let's find a home in San Diego. Let's move there. And she's like, what? <laughs> what do you mean, like, we're just going to move to California? I go, yeah. I said, look, we're going to be homeless. Let's be homeless in San Diego. I heard the weather's like fucking amazing there. <laughs> and, and she started like laugh crying, right? Because like she didn't know if I was serious. But I, but I literally put everyone, got everyone on the plane. We came out here. We looked at 17 homes in two days, which is ridiculous. Uh, uh, pace. She found something, uh, that she, that she loved. She told me 
she said, we don't need to buy a house. Let's just get like a fucking a trailer, an apartment, you know, as long as I'm with you, we're cool. And I said, listen, I fucked this up. I didn't see this betrayal coming. I didn't plan for it. I didn't. And this is, I said, even though you guys know what happened, your life is going to carry on as if you didn't know anything happened. And I will rebuild the business. But, but there were very dark moments where you're just sitting there and, you know, I'm like sitting there like out for a walk, tears running down my face going, what the fuck is going on? And then, you know, and then you, you suck it up and, and it's, it's, all it is is fucking, it's, 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 it's just fighting, right? It's just fighting. You know, you, you, you got ambushed. You know, my whole spear system, right? The whole, the acronym spear, spontaneous protection, evil and cellular response. It's about weaponizing the start of flinch. An attack happens, right? You flinch, but if you continue to turn away from the danger, the danger runs you over. At some point, you've got to push the danger away and then you've got to attack the threat. And that's really the, the, the metaphor of, of my system and, and apparently, you know, how I handle life. So how? Like, like, walk me through this because there, I mean, when you're walking, when you're going for a walk and tears are streaming down your face. Like, I mean, I could imagine myself in a situation like that and feel like the world is crashing on you because, I mean, you right. just went from 100 to zero over the course of, like, what, two days? I, I mean, so how did yeah, you... Yeah, I, I think it was negative 10. It wasn't zero. It was actually, it was actually negative 10. It was, it, was, it was lower than zero, integers. Um, um, it, it, it was it was just as I said. I, like, I know that was a philosophical answer, but it's like it's it's indignation. It's the whole system. In fact, like I've done, um, you know, most of the people I, I I do my my speaking for and my coaching to are professional warriors, but I, I do get called by some businesses to come in and talk because there's a, a practical reality to understanding the psychology of fear from this fighting point of view and, you know, being in business, like if you're part of a corporation, if you're part of sales, if you're part of management. And and so I've done this talk where people ask a similar thing, like, well, how did you, how did you do this? And it's the philosophy of the system of if we go back half an hour to when I was explaining indignation. There's a moment where, you know, you're at the ATM, and you're not paying attention. Someone calls you, and you, so you're not scanning. You look down at your phone, and you see someone important. You go, hey, man, what's up? We can't call you back as you're pulling out, you know, a couple of hundred bucks. The next thing you know, boom, you get hit. You're on the ground, and let's say this person is an asocial predator, and they don't want any witnesses. You're compromised. Your physiology is covering your head. And now the attack continues. It doesn't just dissipate. They're not gone. You have a moment there while you're conscious to go, oh, look at me, poor me, I guess this is it. Or you can go, you motherfucker, in that indignation. So, you know, when when this happened to me with the business stuff, there were moments where metaphorically I just got sucker punched uh, by a bunch of people, and, and I'm on the ground, and they're kicking the shit out of me, and I could either lie there and get crushed, or I can go fuck you and get up. And while there wasn't anybody uh, physically to grab onto, it was more just life that you had to convert the flinch and get tactical. And so that was, and it wasn't, you know, like I'm describing something in two minutes, but, you know, it took me five years to get over it and, and rebuild, right? We're busier than ever. Um, 
uh, and and full steam ahead. But but it took five years of and there's still like residual shit, right? You know, uh, some of those people are still out there that betrayed me and they're still like you know copping shit and doing shit and. You know, and you're like, oh, motherfucking, you know, so you, you get sucked into it. It just doesn't, it just doesn't, uh, um, you know, disappear like, like, uh, uh, like fixing a dent in a car. But, uh, right. but it's, 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 uh, yeah. And then, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, self-awareness is key. It's one of the things that we teach in our fear management block is like, you know, your situational awareness is, is so linked to your self-awareness. I think I, you know, I said that earlier, uh, but, but so there's like being there and realizing, oh, your sympathetic nervous system is fucking jacked up right now. Your heart is racing. You want to call this person and go, you know, how dare you? Uh, you want to go over to their house? Okay, stop. Fucking go work out. Call a friend. Like you, 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 you got to deescalate. Ironically, Paige, it's all the shit that we teach in our personal defense program, right? We call it mm-hmm. the three D: detect and avoid, defuse and deescalate, and then defend. You know, and in, in certain arenas, the fight is just getting back on your feet. The fight is coming up with a new product. The fight is a press release. The fight, like they, like you know what I'm saying. The counter is it's yeah. not always a headbutt, right? So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's why mindset, or at least my understanding of it, is that's why mindset is such a a big part of what you teach and what you do because it's such a huge part of self-defense and everything that you teach. And life. Yes, exactly. That's probably, and life. That's probably the most important uh, lesson here. I mean, the, the most important shit that I do isn't, like, like for some people that are putting their hands on bad guys on a regular basis, of course, some of the physical stuff is important. But if you talk to some of the more experienced people that have gone through our training, you know, they'll – They'll say, yeah, like hold the, like the spear, the finger split, the outside 90, uh, understanding the, uh, cross extensor reflex, how to convert the flinch. That's really important. But they, they universally will say, you know, it's the adaptive courage, the mindset, the resiliency piece that, that we enhance through, uh, through the way we approach developing mindset, um, that was, that made the biggest impression on them. One final question for you. If you could instill one trait in everybody in the world, what trait would it be? Wow. Or like... I'd say to love... If I said <laughs> to love everybody, I'd put myself out of business because then there'd be no violence, right? So, um, I do feel like that so, is a good answer, though. <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, you know, like, honestly, it would be... I'm huge on the self-awareness thing because, like, there would still be serial killers and rapists and bad guys, right? There would be people like, like, like the serial killer would go, I'm a fucking serial killer. I better figure out how to do this and get good at it and not get caught, right? Um, and so there would still be people hunting those guys and there'd still be victims, right? And so I would still be in business and I'm being, I'm being facetious here, but, but, you know, there's there's good and bad. There's fucking evil shit out there, and and the world's an amazing place. But there's also there's also plants you better not eat, and you know, fish that you better not touch, right? And so, oh, absolutely. Uh, so so I think I think everyone would be a lot better off. I think it's stupid to say if everybody just loved her, that's not going to happen. It never has, like since since cavemen were.
cavemen, right? So uh, mm-hmm. there's always been violence. Um, and uh, But I think if everyone could have self-awareness, we could have better, more transparent conversations. Um, you know, I could walk into a room and go, Paige, what's wrong? And you wouldn't, you wouldn't look at me and go, nothing, why? And I could see in your body language that you're <laughs> pissed at me, right? And I go, no. You, you would say, well, here's what's wrong. And then I go, shit, I didn't know. And we'd have a good conversation. And then mm-hmm. kids would make up. Right? So we're suddenly dating Paige in this metaphor. But, the, <laughs> you know, but, you know, but you know what I'm saying? Uh, like yeah, That absolutely. self-awareness would create better communication. Absolutely. Sure. I mean, because there's always a – if you're not self-aware and you're, and you're not just saying what's wrong, then there's a whole other conversation of getting you to – or in this, in this example, getting me to realize that there is something wrong or having the guts to actually tell you what's wrong, and then finally you get to the issue. So, no, I think that's a great answer. Cool. Thank you for this. Thank you for reaching out to me. Thank you for making the time for this. This was an incredible interview, and uh, and I've learned a ton, so I, I really appreciate it. 